Welcome to this message on Titus chapter 1. So let's start with some geography. In the Mediterranean, southeast of Greece, is the mountainous island of Crete. There it is, it's 160 miles long, 35 miles wide. It, it looks a bit like a elongated rectangle out in the sea. And the year is the year 62. And the Apostle Paul, who as you know is Jewish, and his younger colleague Titus, who is Greek, are preaching the gospel on the island of Crete. They're going from coastal town to coastal town. There are very few towns or villages inland. It's too difficult and inhospitable but going from one town to another preaching the gospel. And it's not easy. Uh, the, the Cretans are not actually very easy people. Uh, they're always falling out with each other. One group of towns is not speaking to another group. Almost all people from abroad are treated with hostility or suspicion. It's a culture which is filled with lies. These people are lazy, uh, they're selfish, they want what this world offers, but they're not willing to work for it. They've got savage tongues, and it's not actually very easy preaching the gospel in Crete. And yet, by the wonderful and sovereign grace of God, there are believers in Crete, where sin abounds, we're told in the scripture, grace superabounds. And Churches have been established in Crete. Now, there have been believers there since the day of Pentecost, but now there are churches in every worthwhile city or community on the island. But the churches are, are filled with problems. Um, there are no elders yet. Uh, we shall see shortly that a church to be a church doesn't have to have elders, but a church to be a healthy church has to have elders. And there aren't any yet in any of the Cretan churches. And then there are false teachers who are working away in the churches. And then there's the low standard of living. These are mostly young Christians. They're new to the Christian life. They've come from paganism and from this savage culture. And but their standard of Christian living is very poor indeed. Now at this stage, for some reason or another, Paul has to leave the island. And Timothy, uh, cancel that, Titus is, is left on Crete to labor alone. So Paul writes to him. He writes to him to encourage him, to instruct him, and to urge him to get on with the great work of the gospel. So we have this little letter written by Paul to Titus. It's two pages in our Bibles. It's three chapters. And today we're going to look at chapter one and God willing next week, chapter two and the following week, chapter three. It's a little letter that has an enormous amount to teach us. And its theme is, is very simple. It can be put in one sentence. A church has got to be what a church has got to be. This first chapter, as you can see, is divided into three sections. First of all, you've got verses one to four, 
and then you've got verses 5 to 9, and then you've got verses 10 to 16. And if you want a title for this first message on chapter 1, we'll call it Thrilled, Served, Warned. So let's look at the opening paragraph, which is verses 1 to 4. A church has got to be what a church has got to be. A church has got to be thrilled. Now verses 1 to 4 are an opening greeting. Uh, let's just make a list of the themes which are found in these first four verses. Look at, look at them with me carefully. There's Paul, and the moment people hear the word Paul, they're thinking of this terrible enemy of the Christian faith who's been wonderly, wonderfully converted. And to underline his change of nature, his name is no longer Saul as it was, it's Paul. He's a, he's a bond servant of God. And God has people who are his willing slaves who will go where he sends them and will say what he tells them to say. And amongst those bond servants of God, is the is Paul and he's an apostle he's one of those men who has seen the physical Christ since his resurrection so the moment you hear apostle you also think Jesus and you think resurrection these are the themes which are immediately coming into mind as we open this short letter he talks of course immediately about Jesus Christ the one who's been promised through all those Old Testament years is Jesus and he has apostles and I'm one of them and I'm one of them to advance or to strengthen the faith yes there are men and women of faith and these men and women who have faith are God's elect they are the people whom God has chosen from all eternity and they've come to be saved by faith in the Saviour whom God himself has sent. And these elect of God, they acknowledge, they believe the truth, not in, in simply an intellectual way, certainly that, but the truth which accords with godliness. In other words, they believe in the truth in such a way that it's had an impact on their lives and has changed them completely. Here we are, the elect of God, says the Apostle Paul, believing the truth, changed by the truth, filled with hope. And hope, as you know, in the New Testament is a blessing which is certain to come, but has not yet arrived. And the hope which we have is eternal life. The very life which throbs between God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, the very life which animates the Godhead, which is the very pulse of God, God has promised to give to others. He did this, says the Apostle Paul in verse 2, before time began, and he'll keep his promise because he cannot lie. Paul, of course, is talking about the eternal covenant between the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit, by which God the Father gave to God the Son millions of men and women to be saved. And now this eternal life and this great message about eternal life is known and it's been manifested by preaching. It's been preached, of course, by prophets through all the Old Testament years. 
It's been preached by the Lord Jesus Christ. And now says the Apostle Paul, I'm preaching it too. I've been commanded to do that. The message of preaching and the ministry of preaching the, the gospel of God has been committed to me by God, God himself, who is our saviour. He sent me to be a preacher of this great gospel, this great gospel of eternal life, which has been in the mind of God as long as, being, as God has been God. I'm writing to you, Titus, he says, here we are now in verse four, a true son. What that means, of course, is in Paul's preaching, one of the people converted under that preaching was Titus himself, this younger man, this Gentile man, this Greek man. But now you've come to faith and you're my son in the faith. It doesn't mean that I'm superior and you're inferior. The faith which is in you, Titus, is the faith which is in me. And it's the faith which is in all Christians everywhere, right across the centuries and right across the nations. And he then says, grace. Grace, of course, is, is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy, that's not getting what you do deserve. Peace, <laughs> what a wonderful word that is. And I can't give you those things and you can't give me those things. But they come to us from God, who is our Father, and they come to us from the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our Saviour. And all those things Titus already knew. After all, he is Paul's trusted colleague. So, so what is Paul doing in this opening greeting? He's telling us that we must never approach the question of putting the church right, right unless we're in a proper state of mind. Before we consider putting the church right, our minds must be buzzing with the great truths of the gospel of God. Churches don't exist just to be churches. Churches exist for the sake of the gospel. Churches are communities of men and women and boys and girls who believe the gospel, who love the gospel, who live the gospel and who proclaim the gospel. And our minds have got to be buzzing, therefore, with the gospel before we ever, ever think about sorting the church out. Now, years ago, I, I went to a, a lecture on how a local church should be organised. The lecture was given by a, a young minister who was obviously very confident and very competent. And he took us through all the niceties of church organisation with a special emphasis upon the fact that we should have elders. In those days, very few evangelical churches in Britain had elders. Uh, I was uncomfortable throughout the lecture, although it was engaging, at times um, amusing, in many areas discerning, uh, I was uncomfortable because although it was such a good lecture, um, it, it didn't warm my heart in any way at all. I didn't feel in any way drawn to the, the saviour whose church it is. In fact, there was hardly any mention of him. A few months, maybe a year or so after this very good lecture was given, the young man concerned left his wife, deserted his family and went off with a 
female member of his his congregation. Now, as far as I know, um, well, I haven't. I've never heard of him again. What's the point of that? What's the point of having all the answers as to how the church should be organised, if in fact at the end of the day you disgrace the very gospel which churches are expected to believe and love and live and proclaim? For years my wife and I received a magazine. It was in some respects a very good magazine. It was devoted to the whole question of reforming the church and what was necessary to that. Now there were very well written articles in this magazine, most of them written by the editor himself. Nobody reads that magazine today. Why? Well, but it's not published. Well, why? Well, because people lost confidence in the editor. Why? Because the, the editor was, was not discreet with women. Now, he, he was what we would call in Old English uh, flirtatious. Yeah, he was a married man with, with children, but had far too much interest, um, doubtful interest in other women, and this eventually became very clear to a large number of people. Now, what's the point of that? What's the point of having a magazine which sorts out your church problems, but at the end of the day you, you disgrace the very gospel which the church has been called to uphold by your level of, of behaviour. No, 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 says Paul, that won't do. So as he writes this letter to Titus, he wants to warm Titus's heart. And Paul knows, of course, that the letter will become a public letter, as it is to this day. And it's important, therefore, that these great truths of the gospel should be thrilling us before we ever think about how to tackle the church and its immaturity. Now, somebody might be asking, I hope you are, um, how can I keep my heart thrilled with the, the great truths of the gospel? Well, here are some suggestions. Remember, when a preacher preaches the word, uh, everything he says is important to us and is binding on our conscience. But when a preacher gives suggestions, they're for us just to weigh up and to take them or to leave them uh, as we see fit before God. But why not pray passages like this? Read passages like this out loud and, and pray them. So as you read the first verse, you thank God that he converted Paul. And you thank God that he has servants in this world. And you thank God that there were witnesses to Jesus Christ's resurrection. And you thank God that there are men and women of faith who have faith because God elected them. And you thank God that they don't just believe the truth, but they, they have changed lives because of the truth. And you, you find as you, as you pray a passage and make this the fuel of your prayer, your heart is warming up again with, with excitement at the majesty and the vastness and the, the glory of the gospel truths which we profess. So there's something that you could do. One thing I've found helpful in my Christian life is that before I have my morning quiet time, I recite the Apostles' Creed. Do you know the Apostles' Creed? Probably written about the second century, not by the Apostles themselves, but a little summary of the main truths of the gospel. I find that every day by reciting that meditatively and, and slowly, 
my heart is brought right back to the, the great truth on which my salvation depends. Why not, why not try something like that? Why not, why not sing round the house some helpful choruses which, which bring your mind right back to gospel truth? Well, what choruses do you know? A popular one today, which I don't think we sing in Belvedere, it's become known as the gospel song. Holy God in love became perfect man to bear my blame. On the cross he took my sin. By his death I live again. These little choruses and worthwhile choruses keep bringing our mind back to the great central truths and warming our hearts up again with them. And, and why not engage in some devotional reading? And Calvin wrote a lovely little book called Truth for All Time, which I had the privilege of translating into to English some years ago. There it is, a nice little summary in 60 pages or so of all the great truths of the gospel. That would warm your heart. Why not read The Cross-Centred Life by C.J. Mahaney? Uh, that will bring you right back to the great centralities. Why not read The Incomparable Christ by J.O. Sanders? That's a much longer book, but oh, what, what a wonderful book it is. So that you never ever have the great truths of Christ and his person and his work ever missing from your thinking on any day of your life. Uh, why not buy a hymn book and start singing regularly in your quiet times? Great gospel songs like I will sing the wondrous story of the Christ who died for me or oh to see the, the dawn of the darkest day the power of the cross we, we've got to keep our hearts centered on on the gospel before we ever think about the church and that's the so we've that's that's the first paragraph a church has got to be what a church has got to be and whatever else a church has got to be it's got to be thrilled now the second, the second point. A church has got to be served. Look at verses five to nine. Now a church will never be what a church should be unless it is served by the right caliber of men. Now I, I didn't say led. Um, the Bible does have a, a doctrine of leadership, but it's so very vastly different from the world's idea of leadership uh, that maybe often we should we should keep away from the whole concept of leadership in case we get confused. The Bible talks about Christ being the only leader of the church. He's the head of the church. And Christ rules his church and governs his church by his word and spirit. Through elders with congregational consent. That's the way the, the scriptures work. So churches are to be served by elders. Christ rules the church by his word and spirit through elders. That's what they're called in verse 5. Now in verse 7 you'll see that they're called bishops. Or if you look to the footnote it says overseers. Now, now forget those silly pointed hats and that fancy dress which bishops wear in, in, in certain denominations. A bishop is an overseer. He makes sure that what Christ taught is taught. And what Christ said about Christian behaviour is how the church behaves. And he's a steward of God, as we read in verse 7. God has an estate 
but there are those who manage it and administer it. It's not their estate, it's Christ's estate, but they're the stewards of it. These are the, the men who shepherd Christ's sheep tenderly through their earthly pilgrimage. Now, what sort of men should serve the church as elders? We need to know this. We need to know this because the Apostle Paul makes it clear in verse 5 that although elders aren't necessary to the being of the church, elders are essential to the well-being of the church. And therefore, as soon as possible in Crete, there must be elders in every single congregation. What should they be like? We need to know this. Why? Well, because we thank God for the elders we have. We thank God for them daily. What happens if they die? What happens if they have to move elsewhere for professional reasons or family reasons? What happens if they become too ill to function? Too ill to function? We need to know what sort of men should serve as elders. Well, it's made perfectly clear to us in verses 5 to 9. We are to appoint as elders in the churches men who make us say, Ah! In four different dimensions. Ah! So that's what a real Christian life looks like. Now these Cretans were young Christians. They needed to know what a real Christian life looked like. And many people in our churches are young Christians. They don't know much yet. Hopefully they will soon, but they don't yet. And they need to know what a real Christian life looks like. So there are to be men serving the churches who portray all that to them. So there it is. Look at verse 6. If a man is blameless, doesn't say sinless, I mean blameless, a man of, of good repute, who has a good reputation. Verse 7, a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, he's not out for anything for himself, he's not living for self, not quick-tempered, God isn't not lingering over his wine, as it puts it in the Greek. In other words, not having something which is a really big love in his life, which is not the Lord himself. Not violent. How would God's work get done by violent men? Not greedy for money. Money is a trivial thing compared with the great gospel and the great character of the Lord Jesus Christ. But hospitable, welcoming man. A lover of what is good, whatever is good in his life, and there's a lot of good things in his life. He's a man who loves that, because he obviously he sees the goodness of God in it. Just, fair that is, upright. Holy. There's a godliness about him. There's a, a fragrance about him. There's something heavenly about him self-controlled not controlled by his habits or passions ah oh, that's what a true christian life looks like and there to be men who make us say ah oh, that's what christian family life looks like look at verse six if a man is blameless 
the husband of one wife. Now, there were many men in the early church who had several wives. So they couldn't serve as elders because marriage is a picture of the relationship between Christ and his church. And this is portrayed in a faint way, but in a real way, by, by marriages. See, here's a man who's a, who's a one-wife man. And he's got children, loyal children, not necessarily believing children. We can't convert our children. We, we do everything we can for them, but we can't actually convert them. So you can't make that a, a qualification for, the, for eldership. But faithful children, children who are loyal to the, to the family and, and its values. We're talking, of course, about children who live at home, not, not adults who no longer are under the authority of their parents. Not accused of dissipation, not children going around wasting everything, wasting their money and wasting their time and wasting their energies and wasting their talents. And not accused of insubordination, not children who answer back and are constantly in, in a rebellious mood against their parents. No, 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 not that at all. Chapter verse, verse 8, but hospitable, so welcoming homes, men of integrity, loving, loving, stable marriages, children who, who, who are loyal to the family values. That's what Christian family life looks like. Ah, and there's a third way we should say ah when we're appointing elders. Ah, so, so, so that's what we believe. Verse 9, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. Now if you look at the great confessions of the Christian faith, you'll see that although there are differences between them, on 90% or more of them, there's a great body of truth on which all Christians are agreed. That's the historic faith of the apostles, the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, which has been transmitted through the ages. We would expect our, our elders, obviously, to, to believe that faith and to teach that faith and to make us all understand, ah, oh, that, that's what we believe. And fourthly, ah, oh, so that's what's wrong with those other teachings. Verse 9, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort, that is urge, and convict, that is convince, those who contradict. There are people who have all sorts of ideas today, and many of them are very wrong indeed and are threats to the gospel. But we need men who will serve us, who whose lives speak of Jesus, whose marriages speak of Jesus, whose faith is the faith of Jesus, and who resist everything which isn't in accord with what our Lord Jesus Christ teaches. These, these are not supermen, these elders. If we read the whole of the New Testament, we find every single thing which is commanded of an elder here is actually commanded of all Christians. But there are some men who are further advanced in the Christian faith than others. And they are the men who are to serve the church as its oversight. And if you get that sorted out, Titus, then the churches will be well on the way to recovery. So, a church 
has got to be what a church has got to be. In the first paragraph we learned the church has got to be thrilled and the church now we've learned has got to be served. And finally we come to the third paragraph from verses 10 to the end of the chapter. A church has got to be warned. Warned about who? Warned about false teachers. Verse 10. There are many insubordinate. There are false teachers. There are lots of them around, says the Apostle Paul. So the church has got to be warned about that. Why? That's the second question we need to ask. Why, why do they need to be warned? If we let false teachers have their way, we will end up where these false teachers have ended up. And look where they have ended up. Verse 15. There they're de described as defiled, unbelieving, even their mind and conscience are defiled. And look what we're told in verse 16. They profess to know God, so all their words give that impression, but in works they deny him. They've, so their, their lives don't match their profession. In fact, they're abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Do we want churches like that? So a church has got to be warned. Now, where do these false teachers come from? Well, these particular ones we learn from verse 10, the end of verse 10, were Jewish. But there is no hint that these false teachers came from outside. In fact, in Acts chapter 20, one of the strong things that Paul says to the Ephesian elders is, the, is to warn them that false teachers will come from inside. False teachers have been very successful through the centuries in ruining countless council, 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 countless churches and groups of churches and denominations. But for the most part, they haven't come from outside. They've come from inside. So of course a church needs to be warned. We need to be warned. Maybe some false teacher or false teachers will rise up rise up in our own midst. God forbid that, but maybe it would happen. So what sort of people are they? Well, they do what they do. Look at the end of verse 11. Because there's something in it for them, some form of gain, not straightforward, upright gain, some form of dishonest advantage, which will fall to them by doing what they're doing. And what are they like? Well, look at verse 10. They're insubordinate. They can't be told. They won't be told. They talk a lot, verse 10. But they're deceitful. They're not straight up. They're dishonest. Now, these particular false teachers were typical Cretans, as we see from verse 12. And the Cretans are liars and evil beasts in other words savage people and lazy gluttons people who want 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 but are too lazy to work for what they want so they get it by other means but these particular false teachers like all false teachers profess to know god but as we've seen they don't have a life to match so we need to be warned about false teachers they'll ruin the churches they come from within the churches and they're 
they're self-motivated. And what are their tactics? Well, we're told that in verse 11. They start small. So here's a conversation in a house. One person is persuaded, and then two in the household are persuaded, and then most of the family is persuaded, and then the false teacher moves to another house. It's just private conversations going on small, but little by little the faith of the church and the values of the church and the behaviour of the church is being questioned and undermined and something different is being taught and the whole thing is spreading, spreading, spreading quietly, slowly, surely, ruinously. And what do they teach? Well, we're told that in verse 11, teaching things which they ought not. In other words, they're teaching as truth things which aren't truth, and they're teaching as right things which aren't right. What they teach, we're told in verse 14, in this particular case, is Jewish fables. But that's what all false teachers do. They, they teach make-believe. What else do we know about them? Well, they're imposing on the conscience man-made rules. Now, the only thing we can impose on the Christian conscience, conscience is what God himself has commanded. But these folk are imposing on the Christian conscience man-made rules. We see that from, from, from verse 14. And in this case, it's quite clear from verse 15 that these were food rules. You can't eat that. You can't eat that. I know Christians, yes I do, who think it's sinful to eat bacon. <laughs> I know Christians, or professing Christians at least, who believe it's sinful to eat meat on a Friday. But all the time our Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, has told us that it's not what goes into your mouth and down into your tummy which pollutes you. It's what comes out of your heart. So the moment someone says you can't eat that or you can't eat that, they're immediately contradicting the Lord of glory. And it seems that these Cretan false teachers were also teaching that being in certain places and touching certain things will pollute you. Well, that, that's simply not true, but there are Christians who believe that. For example, here's a Christian church that meets on Sundays in a community centre. The day before, the community centre has been used as, as a, basically as a drinking house. And that room with the, where they meet uh, has been a place of drunkenry, drunkenness and revelry and impure talk. That table where the Lord's table is now going to be held has been used for sinful purposes. And some Christians think, we, we can't meet in a place like that. We can't eat the Lord's table from a table which was used for that purpose. And somehow they think that the, the physical contact can pollute the soul. That's false teaching. It's in direct contradiction to what the Lord is teaching and direct contradiction what the New Testament teaches about Christian liberty. But it's false teaching. So that's what they are teaching. So how are they to be handled, these false teachers, who threaten to ruin the church? Well, verse 9 tells us, the elders must take them on. So the elders, when they know that there's false teachers, they must urge them to change their minds. They must 
try and win them back to the faith and they must exhort them and convince them even though they're they're contradicting uh, the gospel uh, we need to do our best to try and bring them back the same as there in verse 13 that that they may be sound in the faith but if they won't come back if they won't come back to the truth they must be stopped verse 11 whose mouths must be stopped they must not be given the opportunity to preach or to teach or to influence the church in any way at all their mouths must be stopped and they must be sharply and openly rebuked as we're told in verse 13 we can't always therefore be nice we can always be loving we can always be as kind as possible but there are times when we have to stand toe to toe and face to face with false teaching and say no no you can't believe that and you can't behave like that it is wrong it is in direct contradiction to the gospel which god himself has revealed and which christ has committed the church to uphold so what happens if false teachers aren't stopped well what happens is the gospel gets lost it's no longer believed it's no longer loved it's no longer lived and it's no longer proclaimed and the church of course has completely lost the reason for its existence in the first place please don't be one of those christians who says doctrine doesn't matter doctrine is a life or death matter what you believe and how you behave that decides your eternity your eternal destiny doctrine does matter and it's the devil's lie to say that it doesn't and we should learn from history at the beginning of the 1800s almost every denomination in england was preaching the gospel by the beginning of the 1900s almost no major denomination in england was preaching the gospel so what happened well in the seminaries the theological colleges the training institutions people came in who believed modernism liberalism or whatever word you want to use they no longer accepted that christ was both god and man they certainly didn't accept that the bible was the infallible word of god they sowed doubt and false teaching and men went off to study at these colleges and came into the pulpits and began to teach this modernism and they should have been stopped church officers should have said no church members should have said no but they didn't and so today we have all these chapels some of which are open countless numbers of which have closed and been used for other purposes which once were gospel preaching centers but today are either not used in any way at all for god or are mentioning the name of god but teaching something which is not the gospel it's a disaster a church must be a church has got to be what a church has got to be a church has got to be thrilled a church has got to be served a church has got to be warned 